optimistic. I like to see things on the bright side of life. But I, I guess it also means I want to show people that autism has many different flavors. Like we are as unique and diverse as people from the population as a whole. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I've been trying to arrange this guest for a little while. He is an author, uh, he's a data analyst, but he's written several books uh, and does lots of speaking on the topics of Asperger's and autism. Uh, so it's really uh, exciting to have Michael Barton on the show. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for, for being here. Uh, now, I know we're all in, in sort of a, the isolation setup. Um, we're still uh, sitting in COVID-19. The, the, new, the new normal, I think, is what it is. Um, and it's great to hear that you're still working and um, able to do things from home. Um, give us a little sense of why you're passionate about the topic and your, your books and what you speak on. Right, so my story on autism, well, goes back pretty much for my entire life like all well, people are born autistic and they are autistic for their entire lives so obviously started at a very young age uh so i'll just give a summary of my story uh, yeah. so i was non-verbal until i was nearly three years old age two i received the diagnosis of pdd nos which means you don't have to remember this but it means pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified Oh, so you're an anomaly, yeah. Essentially, yeah, it basically means that as a child, I wasn't developing in a typical fashion and I needed support, but they didn't know exactly what. So obviously I started off my education in a special unit. As I said, that's because I was non-verbal until I was three years old and then went to a primary school by on the unit of a primary school and then went into a mainstream class, but still with support. It was at age seven that I received my current diagnosis of high-functioning autism. And I was, as I said, in mainstream school, but receiving one-to-one -one support for, it was eight hours a week. And obviously continued my education in that way. Obviously, as I got older, my abilities were increasing uh, faster at the rate which the education system goes, So, which did mean I was able to still attain good grades, especially in the subjects I was good at, like maths and the sciences, while still requiring help in subjects like English, which are seen as essential. But I mean, I just wasn't very interested in English when I was a child because like, I mean, I am native English, I could speak it and write it fluently. I just didn't really see the point in learning about it, even though it was essential, which caused me a lot of stress at school. But mm. I got through the education system, obviously, writing about my experiences of being autistic. I mean, when I first received a statement of education, which basically means that it's a legal document saying like, I need to have support at school, like it's an obligation for the school to support me. 
I was the first person in my primary school and my secondary school to receive a statement of education, which in a way was good because it meant that the support that I got was tailored to me. They didn't have much experience of other autistic students, but also because they didn't have any experience, like they had to learn everything from scratch. And can I just so ask you, can I just ask you a question before you go forward? Did you, do you have siblings? Like, do you remember what your, your, your parents' experience was of needing to maybe adjust to a nonverbal child and, or, or maybe they've told you um, since? Well, the adjustments of me being nonverbal, I mean, I was probably too young to remember exactly the adjustments they needed, but the thing that they did and what I would suggest is to just, well, just take everything day by day and to just look at the look on the bright side of life, look at the things I can do, encourage the skills that I have while at the same time working on my weaknesses. Because autism is defined by what a person cannot do. So there's a very negative stigma surrounding autism, which is merited in a sense. But my main focus is to say to people, we have talents and abilities as well. You we need to look on the bright side of life and look at what we can do as well. And I mean, that was what my parents were pushing for me because they could tell that I did have skills and abilities which superseded that of neurotypical or normal people. And obviously coming from a family with a scientific background, they encouraged my very logical and analytical and scientific way of thinking which has led to me getting good grades in the sciences and maths at school and getting a degree in physics and I've now worked as a data analyst for the past five years which I mean just having a full-time job alone puts me in the top 16% of the autistic adult population. Absolutely so um, so you have this beautiful mindset around looking at the positives and um, the, the like nurturing what's great and you've also seen the stigma that can surround um, people who might have a, a diagnosis of some kind hmm. um, but did, did you always feel that way it usually is a bit of a journey right that we get to this sort of perspective were there times where you found it really frustrating you're describing being in school where you have a statement which was great, but also that the school perhaps didn't have the, the skills or the understanding of how to support you. Was there a sort of a frustrating bit in between? There were certainly clashes when it came to like, I mean, being autistic, I have a more binary way of thinking, like, I love doing this, this is great, or I don't want to do it at all. So obviously, when it came to doing subjects like English, which I'm forced to do, I was unhappy with that. Sure. Obviously. <laughs> it didn't make but, sense. Why do I have to do this? Yeah. Exactly. I, I am English. I can speak it and write it fluently. Why do I need to read books and understand comprehension and understand what other people are trying to imply from books, which I found very difficult as a child. Obviously, as I've got older and have become more mature, I have been taught to appreciate what other people think. I mean, as I said, it's just something that you have to learn as you go through life. Many people take for granted that other people think in a similar way to themselves. But that's something that I've had to learn because with autistic people, social skills have to be explicitly taught, which made up a lot of my support when I was a young child. But as an adult, this means that social skills is a hard skill, like learning to code, for example, is something that you have to practice and it takes 10,000 hours, they say, to master a skill. And so over the years, I've put thousands of hours into 
learning social skills. So, I mean, it's only now as an adult that I'd say that my social skills are, well, I wouldn't say fantastic, but they are acceptable now. And so you kind of had to learn the, the hard way in a way um, to, you say, we almost take it for granted. So I've got two kids. I take it for granted that they will socialize in their school setting, that they will do their subjects and that the social component will happen in the school playground and through team sports and things like that. But you're saying for you, there really needs to be some clear steps and guidance and practice and support as you develop that skill more consciously maybe absolutely 100 percent. as i said like the main reason it's difficult i mean most people get explicitly taught maths for example so it's understandable if people struggle with maths but with social skills it's something people are expected to pick up and skills that you take for granted yeah but being autistic means that i have to be explicitly taught these skills and some people actually find it quite hard to break down like oh, this is just what we expected to do. Some people find it quite hard to break down why we have these specific social customs. I mean, from a very young age, eye contact is something that has been very much drilled into me. Uh, you're supposed to look at the other person when speaking to them. Even though this isn't a, a wide, globally recognised trait. I mean, there are some cultures in which eye contact is actually seen as offensive or you're not supposed to make eye contact for prolonged periods of time. So it's things like that, which from an early age, autistic children find difficult, but most other people take for granted. But as I said, with the support that I received at school and the fact that obviously, I mean, I still have some motivation to socialise, still want to make friends. I want to be able to interact with other people. I just don't, didn't have the tools as a child to be able to do that. And it's only through the support that I received at school and obviously putting in the thousands of hours of practice but I now have an acceptable level of social skills as an adult. Did you ever feel like many teenagers do in general, but did you, and for you it might have been exaggerated, um, like an, an anger or a frustration about not fitting in or being ostracized from groups perhaps or being different? Or is it just that you were always that way, so you never looked at it in those terms? I think you could argue it both ways. Like, obviously I still wanted to have friends to be part of some form of group mm -hmm. but on the other hand i mean i've always been quite an independent person so almost socially i liked a bit of everything at school like socializing with one group and another group and maybe a couple of groups just kind of going in and out testing the waters for each of them i've never really seen myself being part of one clique so to speak i've almost as i said as i've got older throughout my teenage years i was quite experimentative but when it comes to socializing i do like to be in control as i said with unfamiliar situations everybody likes to have some form of control yeah yeah, yeah. and obviously as i said i as a teenager like my social skills were below par i mean being a teenager is difficult for anybody yes so navigating the social world as an autistic person was that much harder still for me what about, if you don't mind me asking, what about dating and like partying and things that teenagers and young adults kind of get involved in? How was that for you, talking about socialising? I mean, I was only really started dating in a sense. I mean, I do have to say that right now I am in my flat in North London. I live with my girlfriend who I've been with for over five years and my dog. But yeah, it was only really when I went to university that 
I started really dating and like getting to talk to women more because, well, I mean, when I, I went to an all boys school, so didn't have that much contact with the opposite sex, but it's only really, I think, when I started going to university, I mean, I lived in halls for my first and final years, but be, having learned like the basis of social skills, I had some kind of structure and contingency plans if things go wrong and whatnot. So I had some understanding of social skills as a whole by the time I went to university, it was only really by being immersed the entire time around other people, of course, while having the safe space of my own room, that I really honed my social skills because, as I said, I had that base and was just able to practice them a lot while having the security. But there's just so much opportunity to meet lots of other different people. That's when I thought I really got to grips with social skills as a whole. And as I said, as you do as a young adult, go to partying and dating and other such things. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's practice for all of us, isn't it? And then for you, it just has an added layer. Um, Random question, but have you seen the show Atypical on Netflix? No, I haven't. Have you not? I wanted to see how true to life it was. So he's um, got a diagnosis as well, and he's going through his social life. And I I wonder if the media actually depicts uh, somebody with high-functioning autism or Asperger's in a fair light. Um, do you, what do you think in general? Do, do you feel like your story and who you are is represented fairly in the media? I think in general, the media representation of autism is a little bit hit and miss. Yeah. And part of the reason behind this is because autism is such a complex condition. It can affect two different people in very different ways and portray itself very differently. That It's difficult to just put that into one portrayal let's take i don't know sheldon cooper as an example from many people suggest that he is autistic even though that plays into the autistic stereotype of being like very focused scientific white and male that is just one part of it ignoring the whole variety of autistic people that there are out there i mean it's assuming let's say that every english person drinks tea i mean you can't define an English person purely by the fact that they drink tea in the same way that you can't define autistic people by Sheldon Cooper. Absolutely. So yeah, so everyone's different and we need to be inclusive and open to the the variety that is out there. Um, I'm curious, what are the biggest challenges for you? You've obviously put in a lot of practice in different ways. We were talking before we went on air about the impact of COVID-19 and isolation. You mentioned something about routines and I wonder if the, the keeping to a routine is part of this, maybe safety net or challenge, or if there's other challenges that you face still now on a day-to-day basis. I think the main challenges that autistic people face, as I said, I did mention routine, and having a set routine for autistic people is extremely important. I mean, I like to say that I think in the form of spreadsheets. So People have different ways of thinking. Some people think in pictures and numbers. I like to think my brain is formatted in spreadsheets. So if you've got, let's say, a to-do list, a program of what you need to do today, everyone has a mental note of what they need to do for the day and with the timings and everything else around that. So let's take the example of something else happens, like you need to take your child out or something, or someone else says, oh, let's meet and do this later. So most people would just take the spreadsheet, insert a row, and then everything else carries on as normal. It's not that much effort to add in. Yeah. 
But the way my mind works, and I think other autistic people will be able to relate as well, if something else gets added in, everything else gets thrown out of whack. It's as if you have to delete the entire sheet and then rewrite it all again with this extra thing added. And that obviously takes a lot more mental capacity to do. And that's something I don't think that most people appreciate. I mean, certainly as a child, I very much liked having a strict routine. So I knew what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. So I'd always have a visual timetable on the fridge, just so that I could have that point of reference, that safety net, as you described it, so that I would know what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. And obviously with timings, I like to be very precise with my timings. I mean, I find it quite difficult, even as an adult, to understand like some timings are more relaxed. Like if you get to a party at 8 p.m., like nobody turns up at 8 p.m. It's yeah. sort of like quarter past, half past eight, even nine o'clock is acceptable. But if you have a meeting with your boss at 9 a.m., you're not going to turn up at half past nine. You could get no. fined for that. <laughs> and it's that kind of differentiation, which not only do I have to explicitly learn, but I find it quite difficult. It doesn't sit well with me that you can turn up to a party an hour late and that is seen as acceptable. I mean, it says it starts at eight o'clock because that's in the part of my brain that says like, right, this is the routine. This is the timetable and this is how it should be. Even when you put like margin of error into account, I don't like that uncertainty. And what happens when you are faced with that uncertainty? Because as much as you can control as much as possible, and you probably have loads of ways of doing it because you've, you've practiced, um, what would happen or what does happen when like, life happens? COVID-19 has happened. You've had to switch up your routine. You know, what happens for you? Does it make you fall apart a bit or do you have strategies to get you back on track? I mean, to an extent, obviously, there are strategies to get back on track. For example, if you were to go to a party, then I just implement a margin of error. Like, it's okay to be half an hour late to a party. That's absolutely fine. So You have to explicitly tell yourself. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. even with that margin of error, that's very precise. If I give myself a half an hour margin of error, I'd still want to be there at 8.30. And 8.35 is unacceptable to my brain because that's not how my brain works. <laughs> Got it. Even though it's acceptable to other people, like, it just does not compute with me do you kind of get what i'm saying completely yeah 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 so you want to map out okay if, if this is I, I can now understand that this sometimes means this on a cognitive level you can understand yeah. that it's okay to be late at the party but it's not okay at a job interview for example mm. um but you still want to map out how you have a contingency around that exactly. as i said it's like my mind comes in spreadsheets and obviously with spreadsheets you don't just put numbers you can put formulas in there as well and you can have a really long complex formula, you have one comma or one bracket out of place and it all falls apart. Now obviously I need to learn to put in the errors in that way. As I said, that's kind of what I'm trying to say when putting in the margin of error. Like sometimes it's okay if a comma or bracket isn't quite in the right place. But if there's too much that's wrong, I'm just like, nope, it does not compute. So we could, so this is great for like timings and your routine and your day, but you've said you're in, you've been in a five-year relationship. Um, mm. And I know that relationships can be messy. There can be uncertainty. Mm. Dating can have lots of, you know, um, underlying messages that aren't explicit. There's emotions are involved. So we mean one thing, but actually we're afraid of being hurt. So we say something else, all of that stuff. How do you navigate the emotional range of relationships? 
how do I navigate the emotional range of relationships? I mean, I'm, still, I'm trying to answer that for myself as a normal or a typical. I was going to say, that's not an easy question for anyone to answer. No. <laughs> I think the best way to approach, as I said, any kind of dating or relationships or friendships or any kind of interaction with other people, in a sense, is to be quite upfront about some things. Like some things, once you have like a baseline, a safety net, things that you know are going to be a certain no matter what. Once you've got that baseline or get out of jail free card, that's fine. But there's always an element of being outside your comfort zone, which you yeah. need to take into account as well. And I feel that provided you've got the certainty of a number of things and there are enough things that you can control, you can then take steps outside of the comfort zone to expand your comfort zone. It's just the difference with autistic people is that we don't fully understand exactly what our comfort zone is a lot of the time. And being thrown into a social situation in which dating, as, you've, as we've already mentioned, can be difficult for anybody, let yes. alone autistic people, yes. a new completely social context, which we're not familiar with, we don't know what we can control, what our safety net is. So if we can't control the things we want to be able to control, it's going to be very difficult for us to take steps outside of it and try to process the uncertainties absolutely yeah so it's navigating a lot so obviously you've had a lot to manage learn practice understand about yourself you've ended up doing a degree and are in that top percent of people that are working full-time you found a successful life what's mm -hmm. inspired you or what's driving you to also write your books and speak on stage and be on a bigger platform when it comes to this conversation? I think what inspired me to just give talks and get my message of autism about there is essentially down to, well, the view and attitudes and optimism that I have to give the world is just so different to what most people think about autism. I mean, in one sentence, autism is a lifelong developmental condition that affects the way a person interacts and relates with other people. And the fact that autism is seen in such a negative light with such a focus on what people can't do is just so conflicting with my view of the world as just myself. The fact that I'm an autistic person is obviously a part of it, but I don't like to be defined by what I can't do. And it's this conflict that I wish to get across to other people. Like, I mean, not just that this like autism goes along that way i'm almost setting it like a perpendicular right angle because as i said i'm optimistic i like to see things on the bright side of life but i i guess it also means i want to show people that autism has many different flavors like we are as unique and diverse as people from the population as a whole and i guess in a sense i've always been good at presenting and writing articles and giving talks because as i said i've got a different cognitive framework to that of most of the rest of the population. I mean, even as a teenager, I was writing a one-page article for my local autistic trust newsletter, and I gave okay. my first talk at the age of 18, which was almost 10 years ago now. And obviously since then, as like a side gig, I've been paid to go out to different companies, schools, businesses, and I've also done numerous shows as well, just to show my view on autism. And I think I like to think that I inspire people by the fact that like, it's not just overcoming 
the disadvantages that autism brings, but I want to show people a new light into like, not just that autism isn't a barrier for me as such that I have overcome. It's just like, I want to open people's minds to just see autism in a completely different light. I love that. Um, and so you are the author of several books um, yeah. and you're the kid who hated English and yeah. hated that subject. <laughs> so I'm curious how you overcame that uh, to get your message out. I mean, it's, it's quite ironic in a sense that it I didn't is. like English at school, even though I wrote a book. But books essentially are just a form of communication. I mean, I'll talk about my first book entitled It's Raining Cats and Dogs. So when I went into junior school, one of the things I found difficult was idioms or expressions where people would say things that when taken literally make absolutely no sense. Yes. Because autistic people have a very literal way of thinking. So the way that my support assistant helped me to overcome this was we'd have an exercise book in which I'd write down the confusing phrasal expression. <clears throat> I'd draw a picture of the first thing that came to my mind and then my support assistant would write what the expression really meant below. So for example, just the expression, pull your socks up. And then I'd draw a picture of someone pulling their socks up. And then what it really means is just get on with it or hurry up. Yes. So having this link meant that I could just be like, well, this expression means that, that means that. And I could learn that pretty quickly, obviously with a picture to help. So not only did it help me to understand the eccentricities of the English language, but it also meant that teachers, family and friends alike could understand how the autistic mind works. So it was a very powerful tool, not just for me, but for everybody else around me to help understand how I think. And it's the power of just a simple exercise book, which was the main motivation to get that message out to a wider audience. Hence, It's Raining Cats and Dogs was initially published. It's such a good book title. It makes so much sense. Uh, oh, for, for really? <laughs> well, it does to me. <laughs> it, well, it does to the outside for us that, um, as you said, some of us assume that everyone must think the way we do. And that's a powerful message um, within the autism uh, world and understanding people with, mm. um, that are on the spectrum. But also in general, there, this is a world where there's lots of conflict and we want to actually think that even people who don't have that sort of, it, we, we talk a lot about mental health issues on this show um, and thinking that one person's experience of depression might be different than somebody else's experience. Mm. And that actually we can't just lump people into this one kind of label rather than thinking of the nuances of their own experience. Um, so before I ask uh, my final question, just to get some advice from you, where can people find you if they're interested in your books or speaking or to get in touch? Well, I've got my own website, michaelbarton.org.uk. They can find more about me in the talks that I do and you can contact me through there. I'm also online, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and also my books, It's Raining Cats and Dogs and A Different Kettle of Fish. You can buy them and leave five star reviews if you can on Amazon. Excellent. We'll add all of that into the show notes. So finally, um, I know you've been living with a diagnosis since you were seven, but of course, experiencing the world uh, for your whole life in, in this way. What advice might you give to your younger self or a kid who's just getting a diagnosis? Because some people don't get diagnosed till much later, depending on where they are kind of on the spectrum. Uh, and it might feel really overwhelming and really sad and really like, oh my God, I'm different. How am I going to do this? That negative image that you talk about. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to that person 
to, to sort of follow you as a bit of a role model? I mean, you raise an interesting point there because as me and my younger self, I mean, I was self-centered, like not selfishly not thinking of other people, but I was just me living in my own world. I just didn't think about other people as much as others do. So, I mean, I was just going through the world. I didn't think I had a problem. I was just me. Sure. <laughs> so it was actually the main problem sat with like other people trying to get me to fit into a world with which I wasn't compatible as a child. So it was other people and the fixed education system. Those were problems because you're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole in that sure. sense. Yeah. So, I mean, leave me to my own, as a child, like leave me to my own devices. I was capable of building immensely complex Lego models, for example. I'd learned everything there was to know about dinosaurs, sharks, and the universe. So put me in a situation in which I'm comfortable and I could absolutely excel. Sure. And I still say that is the case today. But the advice I would give to other autistic people and their family and friends and teachers is just, just, just to look on the bright side of life. Autistic people, even though autism is a diagnosis based on what a person cannot do, you need to focus on your strengths and what you can do as well. Because if you, a person is talking about purely based on what they can't do, of course they're going to develop mental health problems like yeah. depression, uh, doubting their own self-confidence and other things like that. But you need to appreciate a person for the strengths and the talents that they have as well as giving them support that they need to fit into the world. I love that so much. Um, Michael, thank you so much for your wisdom and advice. We'll definitely share out your uh, website and your books. I'll try and get, put out that five-star review as well. Um, and thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Petra. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.